0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you uh, for being with us again today for another Political Rewind. How are all of you doing uh, out there? I know that for many people... Uh, we're in another day of self-isolation, uh, not getting out to, uh, to work, working out of our houses, not seeing our friends and neighbors. So I, are you all holding up okay? The longer this goes on, I think the more trying it can become for many people, especially with the news that uh, we still may be ahead of the curve on the virus and it may be uh, taking more of a toll in the days and weeks ahead. I, I would love to hear from you. Uh, about how your daily life is being affected by this. I'm a little slow in answering some of my email. I tried to answer a bunch of it this morning. But I'd like to hear from anybody who wants to tell me about their life right now. Just email me at bnigut, bnigut, at gpb.org. And I, I really do want to hear from you, and I'll try my best to respond as quickly as I can. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, as we have every day during this emergency, and a great panel to discuss the news with. Uh, let me introduce everybody now. Greg Bluestein, uh, the AJC political reporter, is with us today, and as he is on most Wednesdays. Greg, how are you holding up?
2: I'm holding up. Yesterday was a little bit rougher than, <laughs> with the kids, at least, than normal, but uh, we're, we're, we're yeah. hanging in there.
1: Well, we're glad you could join us today, and I'm sure your daughters are, are uh, giving you all you can handle right about now.
2: They are doing that.
1: Do- Dr. Andra Gillespie, Emory University political science professor, is with us as well today. Andra, how are things going for you? Are you able to teach classes by remote?
3: Oh, yeah, I'm teaching on Zoom. So it's, it seems like it's working out. I'm having trouble figuring out how to post a uh, video of lectures, even though the audio is fine. But uh, yeah. my students and I are managing.
1: Good, good. Glad to hear that. Um, we're also joined by political science professor Amy Steigerwalt of Georgia State University. Amy, you too, are you teaching?
0: Um, Sort of. So I had the interns at the Capitol who obviously are not at the Capitol anymore, but they've all got to work on a long term paper project. So it's a bit less of the kind of day to day that Andra has to deal with. Um, But thankfully, everybody seems to be doing okay, and everybody's adjusting to the new normal.
1: Good. Glad to hear that. And we're also joined today by Heath Garrett, Republican strategist and government relations expert. Heath, you're somewhere up in Marietta, I assume, and I'm looking at you on our FaceTime live group chat, and I think you're sitting in a Brumby rocker. Bill, I am. You know, the oldest manufactured
4: product in the state of Georgia since 1875 the uh and uh we're, we're holding in in cobb county and marietta and all of my elected officials uh clients are obviously as you know uh very busy trying to uh, do everything they can to help with the situation and then all of our other clients are trying to keep businesses operating in this uh, crazy time all
1: right. all right well we should say by the way uh rumby family is part of your family now too so the rocker is very important to your life Um, Hey, Tom Faust and Jake, uh, I am hearing my own voice coming back to me about a second or so later. I can keep doing the show that way, but if you guys can fix that, it would make it a little easier for me to focus. All right, let's talk about the big news that we have uh, today in Georgia. As of 7 o'clock last night, the state reports they have uh, 1,097 confirmed cases of the virus. That's up 297 cases in just the last day. Unfortunately, 38 deaths, that's 12 additional deaths just in the last day. 361 people have been hospitalized. That's a new figure that the state is reporting to us. We continue to see cases of the virus in metro Atlanta, particularly. The largest numbers are there, uh, but, of course, we're seeing it in counties around the state. Um, And... um, we're seeing that there are any number of municipalities across the state that are starting to act on the Georgia Municipal Association's request that they issue uh, uh, shelter in place or, or at least uh, restrictions in their community for operating business as usual and declare states of emergency. Decatur, Sandy Springs, Marietta, uh, the county of Cobb, Smyrna, Kennesaw, Lilburn, Peachtree, Corners, and many others. One other really interesting note. Um, we reported the other day that Joe Rogers, the uh, chairman of uh, Waffle House, uh, had uh, said in a piece in the uh, Atlanta Journal that he thought that the state and the country were overreacting to the virus and that businesses should not be closed down. He did not want to close Waffle Houses. Well, uh, we now learned that Waffle House has closed 365 locations across the southeast Midwest and the northeast so uh, I think clearly the situation has been changing pretty rapidly all right um, Greg Bluestein uh, let's start with oh let me one other note and then and then I'll get to you Greg um, tomorrow night the governor and uh, members of his administration are doing a special town meeting that's going to be carried statewide, GPB TV and radio will carry it, so will other TV and radio stations. The governor's part of it, Kathleen Toomey, the commissioner of public (coughs) health, Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, Uh, the GEMA GEMA head, Homer Bryson, insurance and fire commissioner, John King will be part of it. And I'm really happy to say that our own Patricia Murphy is going to be part of the team that is uh, talking to the state officials, so that's eight o'clock tomorrow night on GPB Radio and on GPB TV. I think right. that is so uh, cool. Greg you know, Blustein. By the
2: way. I think. It's Tell so me neat. what you mean by I that, just, right? Yeah, I was just asked to write a story about that, like as we were get, getting ready to air. So I just published a story about that. But it's neat seeing how all the me- me- major Metro Atlanta stations, as well as GPB, are getting together to, to, to host this. You know, it's a very competitive market, and it's neat to see how 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 the stations are working together to get this crucial information to to Georgia, to Georgians. And Governor Kemp will be in one studio and Kathleen Toomey will be in another. There'll be other officials, the GPB. It's really, it's really neat. Um, I just literally got the details about it um, hammered down just a few minutes ago, and it's cool to see.
1: Yeah, okay, that's going to be interesting to watch that whole thing. But as long as we're talking about that, Greg, um, the governor continues to uh, resist the calls that many other states have already taken up, which is to really shut things down in Georgia. He continues to make suggestions for how various communities might want to react, but he simply will not take a statewide action to uh, tell businesses that it's time for them to shut down, uh, to declare uh, that uh, we just can't continue doing business as usual. We've asked the governor's people why he resists that. They say that they're following the advice of the CDC, and other public health officials, you actually finally talked to the governor in an interview with him. Tell us what he told you about that.
2: Yeah, he. I asked him the same question you just mentioned: like who, who specifically is giving you this advice? And he's, he 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 rattled off a, a long list of, of, of of names from Kathleen Toomey, the head of the public health department, all the way to to you know White House task force, um, coronavirus task force officials. But um, essentially, he is he is. Concerned about the economic impact, he's concerned that uh, that that people won't be made whole by any sort of stimulus that that, that might pass today, and that uh, you know, decades. What he said, decades of, of work for for some folks, especially in rural areas where the virus hasn't hit hard yet, or that we don't know if it's hit hard yet because of limited testing, um, would go up in smoke. Um, you know, in a matter of uh, of days or weeks. Um, so he said he still has quivers in his. Uh, arrows in his quiver. He's, he did not rule it out. He said that's still an option, but I th- it sounds like he wants he, th- he, he wants to put teeth behind uh, his urging. Um, he had urged for a long time for, for churches to, to hold online services and for businesses, non-essential businesses to shut down and for people to stay home from work. And this sort of gave the public health department the the ability, the authority to shut down businesses that aren't practicing this. Of course, to many, many critics, including public health experts, this does not go anywhere near far enough.
1: Andra, uh, it it feels to me like what we're talking about here is a more traditional Republican response to dealing with uh, government issues, and that is uh, Republicans tend to not like to see uh, – top-to-bottom kind of orders being carried out. They prefer local jurisdictions to take actions on their own in the same way the federal Republicans and federal government want states to uh, have some control. Do you see it that way? I
3: don't see it as much as a partisan issue um, as much as I'm thinking about the management issue. And so I want to acknowledge that the challenge here is real, that there really is a tension between being a good steward of the economy and being a good steward of public health. Um, But at the end of the day, I think the question is going to be, is the governor taking a big risk? So you've had the epidemiologists who have come out and say, shut down the state, it will flatten the curve faster. If he waits until he's seeing these exponential increases um, in the number of cases or in the number of deaths, then, yeah, he can make the, the case to shut it down. But the state would have to shut down longer than if he did it earlier, and I think that that's the problem. And then also if it looks like uh, government is catering to business and not to public health, it has the risk of looking very craven and very greedy, even though there are legitimate concerns about people losing their jobs and businesses being permanently affected by the losses that they're going to incur here. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, I would err on the side of preserving people's health because that gives people a fighting chance to rebuild their business on the on the back end of this.
1: Bill? Heath, uh, and- I, yeah.
4: Yeah, no, look, I, I don't think that these two things are mutually exclusive. And I think that the governor, <clears throat> I think that Fauci uh, spoke to this over the last couple of days as well. Uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, break the economy in order to bend the curve. And I think that's what Governor Kemp and the president and a number of people are focusing on. What they're focused on is a precision-oriented, and we can tear this. There's nothing that prevents uh, the the governor of New York for taking greater precautions in the dense areas around New York City that are different than the uh, 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 efforts that are going to be taken in rural New York. And I always like to say, you know, that what we need, what epidemiologists are actually saying is. What we need to do in the super dense populations like New York, San Francisco, L.A., even in New Orleans because of the crowds that they had, maybe even in Miami, is very different than what you do in Manhattan, Is in New York, is, what you, is very different than what you do in Manhattan, Kansas, right? And so we need a tiered system of how we go about it. And I think that's where the president and the Governor Kemp's of the world are going. Um, and so I do think that there's – a, a Yes, it's the simplest thing to do to say shut everything down all at once everywhere, but that may not be the most precise way, and surely with big data and with all of the uh, intelligent uh, processes we have in place today, we can have tiers. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia may, for example, need to be, because of its density, in a different tier of shutdown than Baker County, Georgia, with a population of 2,300
1: where their lives are social distanced every day. Amy, let me get you in here, and then, Andre, I know you want to weigh in as well. But, Amy, it is interesting, though, that the Georgia Municipal Association, which represents like 538 municipalities, jurisdictions, they issued an order telling, or not an order, but they recommended that the members of their organization basically shut down in a way that the governor hasn't done. And, and, I mean, I think some will interpret that as something of a rebuke to the governor, and if not that, at least they're saying we think somebody better step up here, Amy.
0: Yes, and I, I should probably say in all transparency that— Did we lose I, you, Amy? No, I'm here. Can you hear me?
1: Andra, why don't you go ahead? We'll try to reestablish with Amy.
0: Um, I mean,
3: I think the thing that I would say kind of in response to Heath with respect to rural Georgia is, one, the infrastructure isn't there. To be able to you know really equip and treat people right in part because we've been dealing sort of with a crisis of the closure of rural hospitals Um, I was talking with a friend who is a physician in South Georgia, and, you know, one of the things that he was noticing was that people weren't practicing social distancing when they were coming together. So, yeah, while it may, you know, while I think there is something to say that people live farther apart from each other, the infrastructure to actually be able to implement sort of good public health measures um, is also a challenge there as well, and we can't just sort of rely and fall back on uh, the fact that people live farther apart and probably won't see each other as much. I think we also just have to, acknowledge some um the disadvantages that kind of come there so where you don't have the same type of health infrastructure that's being challenged in cities it's going to be more acute in the counties and then you're also dealing with older populations there that are more at risk so that also
1: becomes an issue amy do we have you back i hope so can you hear me yep excellent
0: um so I should actually probably say for all transparency that before I start talking that my dad may have worked at the CBC for 40 years in the infectious disease sure, division. Sure. And so that in part does, I think, kind of affect how I respond to these things. Um, and so needless to say, the calls that are coming from there, I do think that, so I actually don't disagree with anything that's been said. I think what's important though, is to recognize that even if the strict measures are not being put into place in the less populated counties, it doesn't mean that you should be getting together in large groups and being close to each other and all of that, because there still is a very real concern about the spread, right? What's making this difficult is that it is a highly contagious virus that also takes a while before symptoms show up in people. And so someone could, in fact, be infected, have no idea they're infected, be going around to lots of people, and then approximately 10 to 14 days later be in the hospital. And in that time, they've done all the things that they have normally been doing. And so I think part of the issue is recognizing that even if we don't say you have to work at home, we have to shut down all of the businesses it doesn't mean therefore things are normal. It means make sure that there's not tons of people around you. When you go to the grocery store, keep six to eight feet between you um, at all times. Yesterday my son and I went, we went on a walk. We we live in Midtown and we walked over to Piedmont Park and it was really kind of delightful. People were out getting exercise, but everyone was also uh, appropriately social distancing there you know you had yeah, some clearly yeah. family groups and otherwise everybody was spread out in the way that they needed to be and i think that's the part that's important to recognize is it doesn't mean if you're not under a simple the stay-at-home order that you should be getting together in big groups and be packed into pews in church and things like that
1: okay um so we will be interested to hear tomorrow night uh, what the governor has to say, if he has anything more to say about his uh, somewhat reluctant attitude to shut everything down here when he does his town meeting. Greg, let's move on to a very big step that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has taken. On our show at the beginning of the week, he uh, said, or beginning of last week, he said that uh, he was looking at mailing out absentee ballot applications to senior citizens in Georgia to protect them against uh, having to go into polling places that could be crowded and make them more vulnerable to the virus in May. But now we've learned, as he suggested he might be doing on our show, that the Secretary of State's going to send out absentee ballot requests to all 6.9 million active voters in the state so people can vote by absentee ballot uh, rather than go into polling places for the May 19th primary. Greg, that is the beginning of what could be an enormous shift in how the citizens of Georgia see voting here. You're exactly
2: right. The, the, this absentee voting effort, remember these are just as you mentioned, these are request forms, they're not necessarily ballots, but These will allow Georgians to decide on their choices for president and other elected offices from home without having to visit in-person voting locations where the virus can more easily spread. And it's another example of this kind of remarkable compromise between the secretary of state's office, Republican, led by Republican Brad Raffensperger, and the Democratic Party of Georgia, which has often been at odds. They've also been at odds with each other over a series of litigation stemming from the 2018 election, well, they've managed to forge two compromises, two major compromises in the last week or so. Um, they first delayed the, uh, the the vote that would have been yesterday, the, the presidential primary, and then they've struck an agreement on this. And two, two, two compromises that I think will, will, will open up ballot access to a tremendous number of Georgians that otherwise would have stayed home yesterday and not voted because of coronavirus.
1: The uh, Secretary of State's office says the reason they're sending out applications and not absentee ballots themselves are, are th- uh, there are several reasons for it. One, uh, because obviously in Georgia you are w- you're able to select either a Republican or a Democratic ballot when you go into the polling place, and and so uh, if they had to send out separate Republican and Democratic absentee ballots, it would really exponentially increase their cost. So that in and of itself seems to be a pretty good reason why you just tell people. Uh, you'll get an application, respond by telling us whether you want a Republican or a Democratic ballot. These forms are supposed to be going into the mail uh, so that voters will start receiving them next week. You pick your, the party you want, you sign your name, you put a stamp on the envelope, and you send it out. And, um, and your vote will be counted uh, as long as you get it in by May 19th, the date of the primary. Andre, what impact in a larger way could this possibly have on the election in general? Among other things, it means that uh, campaigns, which might tend to focus on uh, getting the votes out for election day uh, rather than over a period of, of a month or so, have to rethink how they're communicating, yes?
3: Well, they've already had to rethink that because um, of the coronavirus crisis. So, you know, you can't do a lot of in-person stuff anymore, but you can still be personal through personal contact via phone and text. And so this is um, going to change the script, of course. So it's going to be, did you get your absentee ballot? Have you completed your absentee ballot as opposed to uh, whether or not you're planning on voting and for whom you're going to vote? But in other ways, this is also one, uh, this is a good way for a dress rehearsal just in case this uh, virus is still with us or we have to have other lockdowns later in the year leading up to the November election. This is actually sort of a good dress rehearsal to see that if we could do it in this primary election, we could also be able to do it in a general election. Um, And then finally, I think, you know, it's also just really important for uh, the state to kind of get used to alternate forms of voting that uh, one might be safer um, since people still do have concerns about whether or not voting machines could be hacked. Um, And then also just making voting more as convenient as it could possibly be for registered voters.
1: Heath, um, just by comparison, the 2018 election cycle, uh, 7% of uh, Georgia voters did their voting by absentee ballot. So this could be an enormous increase. It's going to cost the state something like $13 million uh, to do this. But what what I asked Andra, and, and let me ask you and then Amy, um, I, <laughs> yes, the virus is changing. And we're going to talk a little while about how campaigns have had to retool for the virus Uh but, but there's a rhythm to a campaign, as you as a consultant well know. Those rhythms changed a bit when states across the country began adopting early voting periods. Nevertheless, in many ways, campaigns focused more on, ter- on the campaign climaxing with Election Day. Does this change the rhythm of how campaigns move forward Uh, No question about it. It changes the rhythm, just like
4: early voting did. If they're going to send out absentee ballot requests this coming week and uh, what you can do, maybe the average voter doesn't know this, is once the state uh, gets a request back, that's public information. So the campaigns can know that a certain household has asked for a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot. Uh, Normally, you have a small percentage of the voters that are requesting those ballots and you do what in the art is called chase. You chase that ballot back to the household. So you then know you send direct mail to that household. You do phone calls into that household. You may have door knockers show up at that household until it's known that that absentee ballot has been returned to the secretary of state. That information is even public. And then, you know, you don't have to talk to that household anymore. And so what it'll do is shift resources uh, tremendously over the next four to six weeks into chasing these absentee ballots into the households. Uh, And obviously the campaigns are basically been suspended from door to door and from their normal, you know, big event oriented types of uh, uh, campaigning. So this becomes along with digital media and virtual campaigning, the the, the way they're going to do it. So it actually provides campaigns with some real precise data uh, on how to, how to go after a voter and,
1: which household, and where to go. Amy, that's a really interesting observation that Heath makes. It completely transforms the practice of canvassing, of having volunteers going out throughout the communities to identify potential voters for their candidates and then uh, following up by making sure they get out the vote. As Heath points out, uh, this gives such precise information to campaigns, Amy.
0: It really does, and I'll admit that I did not realize how much of that was public, and that is both fascinating and, I would argue, really fantastic, right? It gives us much better ideas of who is responding. It also means that we can have an idea of who is not responding and where are the areas that if, in fact, for example, Georgia decides down the road to move to um, you know, more of this in the next elections, who are the people that are not getting them and where are we seeing the breakdown, right? Are we having more issues? Um, Is this solely about people that, for example, don't have set addresses, right? So that would be people in homeless shelters um, and that have housing insecurity. Um, Are we seeing more issues of these types of ballot requests getting to people that are living in uh, multifamily homes or large apartment units as opposed to single family homes. And it also I mean, as, as Heath noted, there's ways in which it really makes it a lot easier for the campaigns and sort of really positive ways to know who, in fact, do we need to. Um, devote resources to. And what might be interesting, um, and this is sort of, a, I guess, a natural experiment to find out what happens, if we can start to see who it is that's not returning and have that information, it will give us a lot more real-time data about uh, both difficulties and positives in trying to uh increased turnout among groups that normally have really low turnout. So, for example, the youth group, right? If now all of a sudden we've got a lot more data about whether or not they're even sending back in the requests, or if they're sending back in the request and not following through, it means that we can target that a lot more. And this might actually be a way to really be able to boost turnout really across the board in ways that we haven't been able to before.
1: Um, Greg, I want to give you the last uh, thoughts about this before we have to get to a break. Um, I know we're all still trying to wrap our arms around exactly how uh, a large percentage of votes being cast by absentee ballot might impact the election itself. Do we have any reason to start thinking about whether this advantages one party, one candidate, or the other, or should that be basically a wash as far as you're concerned?
2: Not yet. I mean, I've talked to operatives from both parties who who do believe it will be a wash, particularly in a primary, you know, when there's not a – well, there are a few basically uh, head-to-head matchups between uh, candidates, but for the most part, it's going to be sectioned off from different parties. So um, we'll see if we see a tremendous uptick in votes from either either side of the line. Um, I think it's too early to tell, but this could also, you know – Pre- preface a, a larger, broader shift in November. This could remind voters that they've always yeah. had this option. Um, Georgia's allowed this since 2005, but just 7% of voters voted by mail in the 2018 midterms. So.
1: All right. Um, let's do this. Let's get a break in. Uh, by the way, there are election officials that are quoted in Mark Niecy's piece in the Atlanta Constitution today, uh, especially a, a former election official in Denver who says the state of Georgia is going to be hit by millions of pieces of paper when they start getting these absentee ballots and that there's going to have to be a real ramping up of uh, how the Secretary of State's office, how county uh, uh, elections offices deal with this uh, influx of paper that's going to come their way. So this is a story we're going to watch very carefully in the weeks ahead. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll be back in just a minute with more of Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every
1: weekday afternoon. We're back on political rewind. Uh, Heath Garrett is with us. Amy Steigerwald, Andrea Gillespie, Greg Bluestein, all joining us by remote. We're doing, continuing to do our shows by telephone. I'm continuing to host the show out of my home studio in uh, Greater Decatur. Uh, and thank you all for being with us for the show today. By the way, Andrea uh, Gillespie, I thought it was interesting. Five thirty-eight. Uh, wrote a uh, piece the other day that gives us an interesting little piece of historical perspective. I don't know other than telling people about it that we have a lot to say about it, except that the, the, they, they reminded us that uh, in 1918, that the, the uh, election, the midterm election was influenced very greatly by the Spanish flu epidemic, which was then running rampant through the United States. And uh, it drove down turnout dramatically. Uh, You also had a couple million American men fighting in the First World War. My my point being, this isn't the first time right now that we're seeing an election affected by a flu virus or or by by a virus.
3: So, yeah, I mean, I think that there are two things to kind of take from that. One is that the election still happened. Um, and so there's a petition that's going around uh, amongst political scientists to kind of urge our government officials to not use uh, the co- the COVID crisis as an excuse to, you know, indefinitely postpone elections. So, you know, we still have concerns about democratic fragility and other kinds of things. And so we wouldn't want anybody to kind of take that. But I think it's also a reminder of what we can do even in the midst of crisis. And I think we're actually in a much better position now technologically um then america was in 1918 and so if they could run an election in 1918 in the midst of a pandemic then certainly we can um because we have the ability to be able to vote by mail and to do other kinds of things so you know we should just leverage the technology that we have to be able to try to run as normal a campaign even though it's going to be totally different this time and still make sure that everybody who uh, can vote does vote
1: oh I thank you for that um Let's talk presidential politics. We have not talked about presidential election for quite a while uh, on this show because we've been focusing so much on the coronavirus. Uh, Greg, let me start with you, if I may. President Trump has been dominating the airwaves every day, taking uh, part in the daily briefings uh, from the uh, White House press room, uh, uh, the briefing room, to talk about the virus. And, and so he's getting an enormous amount of attention for good or ill. I mean, clearly, this is a huge test for his presidency. But at the same time, he's crowded Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, completely off the stage. So first of all, would, do you think—I sent out a statement to all of you saying, is this the moment, this period of time, in which President Trump either secures his re-election— or stands a good chance of losing based on how he handles this. Do you think that's a fair assessment, or is that an exaggeration?
2: I think it's fair. I, we've had a lot of these moments, though, where we thought we thought impeachment, we thought any number of things would have been his make or break moment. But at this point, you know, lives are being lost. Right. This this is when this is when the public needs to have trust and and faith in the federal government to lead a response. Uh, but Joe Biden is certainly struggling to break through in all this yesterday was a great example of this he gave his first major tv interview in weeks on the view but even as he was on the view other networks and stations broke even 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 stations that broadcast the view cut cut into uh, a, a press conference of governors and mayors daily briefing on the crisis in, uh, in other cities so he is really struggling to to kind of find his voice um, amid this pandemic crisis that joe biden is and, and Trump is dominating the, the media sphere for, as you mentioned, for better or for worse. Um, you know, his critics think that he's he's loving it and his, and his supporters think that he's he's giving a strong response to it. And, and I think polls bear that out so far. We haven't seen any major dip. And in some polls, you even see his approval rating, President Trump's approval rating increasing.
1: Uh, Heath, I. Uh would you agree with the premise that this is a break or make uh, situation for the president? I realize that he's not on the ballot until November, but it's now. Yesterday, Alan Abramowitz said mm-hmm. that he believes it's in the second quarter of a given election year, presidential election year, that voters really uh, make decisions about who they're going to elect.
4: Uh, I, I don't. It could be the make or break moment, Bill. I don't think anybody that does what I do on a daily basis would say it definitely will, because six months uh, is a, is has always been a lifetime in politics. But in the modern era with Donald Trump, it's it's every six uh, hours or six days. It is interesting. Uh, <laughs> Greg correctly points out that the polling information that we have out there, anecdotally, shows that the country's pretty much staying right where they were pre-crisis, right. If you supported the president before this crisis, before the pandemic, it, you know you tend to be favorable towards uh, how he's handling it. And if you uh, were opposed to him before, you don't like how he's handling it. And then what other polling data shows, Bill, is that the American people, the few times that Biden or other Democrats have tried to politicize the pandemic, uh, the the focus groups and the polling shows that they don't want that happening either. And so. It remains to be seen, but yes, presidents and governors are oftentimes defined by how they handle the crisis in front of them. Uh, You're back to uh, how Bush handled 9-11 versus how Bush handled Katrina. Uh, Katrina uh, definitely affected the 2006 uh, midterm elections in a tremendous way. So I think there's plenty of historical evidence that presidents and governors ultimately are judged on how they handle the biggest crisis right before that election.
1: Let me get our political scientists in on this, Andra, and then Amy. Andra?
3: Well, I mean, I think, one, I agree with Alan. So, you know, nobody's, none of us in our business are really going to come up with a predictive model until the summer. So I think it, I think it's important to see how this ends up panning itself out. So President Trump is taking a big gamble. Um, you know, he wants to try to goose up the economy in part because we know that economic performance does actually play a role in predicting the uh, the president's popular vote. Um, that's, you know, likely to be the case here. He doesn't want a bad economy as a result of this. Uh, but on the other hand, if he bungles the crisis and we end up in a situation like Italy or Spain, right, like that actually speaks to some management issues and it uh, speaks to a certain level of callousness that I think ultimately could be a problem for him. Right now in the short term, you know, he's benefiting from the press briefings. If if we look at uh, his approval rating with respect to coronavirus because it looks like, you know, uh, he's being responsive, that he looks kind of presidential, um, you know, when he's up before folks every day, except when he has those bad days where he just lashes out at people and talks about himself. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, if people die, if this hits home in a really acute way, then that could actually, that exposure could actually end up being a liability for him. And I just want to add one more thing about Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe Biden is at a disadvantage, Bernie Sanders is at a disadvantage. Um, assuming that Biden is the nominee, there are still some things that the Democratic nominee can do, and I would say this regardless of who that person was. So, one, you can still have your robust field operation going on behind the scenes. You can still be you know, creating direct mail, communicating to voters digitally. You could still be reaching out via phone banks. Um, And other kinds of things. I think there's a way to do it that doesn't look, uh, you know, overtly craven and sort of act and tone deaf in terms of not recognizing where people are. There are still field operations that can still take place behind the scenes that are actually more important than necessarily having the sort of like the big glitzy earned media types of of, of moments that are in fact going to come back at some point in the future.
1: Uh, Amy, let me uh, uh, give you an opportunity to talk about to the extent you want to how President Trump's uh, going to be perceived in all this but but let me add the Biden layer to it. Uh, it, it is true that Biden has been having a hard time breaking through as Greg Bluestein pointed out you know it's interesting Governor Cuomo in New York is becoming a celebrity beyond anything that he's ever experienced before and is getting huge credit for the way in which he every day is getting on television talking about the virus in very candid terms, being careful. He has been critical of the president to some extent, being careful about how he criticizes the president. And Cuomo's on, he's not just getting New York TV stations and radio stations to cover him. He's on all the cable networks. Biden cannot seem to find a way to break through in that way. And and this does feel like a moment when uh, his supporters would want to see him show what kind of leadership he can exert, Amy.
0: No, I think that's very true. This is the first time that Biden has run for president or actually run for uh, office in you know four decades where he's not also holding office simultaneously. And that's part of the issue. Right, right now, he is in many ways a private citizen who is speaking on these issues, and certainly he's a candidate running for president. Certainly he is more likely than not to be the Democratic nominee, but he's also not speaking from a place of being someone in office. Right, We can compare that, as you said, to Governor Cuomo, who in many ways is, number one, handling where the largest outbreak is in Right. A state that is a large percentage of the population of the United States as well um, and who is in some ways sort of giving up a, a counter narrative, which also makes it for many uh, even more uh, important to hear because it does seem to contrast with a lot of what we're hearing out of the White House, that it's briefings about, well, things are going well, testing is coming up people have the equipment they need, whereas Governor Cuomo is giving a really very different thing. And Biden doesn't have the ability to give an on-the-ground type of reaction that's different than that because he's not, in fact, in office. What I think, though, is totally right, that there's a lot that can be done behind the scenes and perhaps right? What can happen now is to sort of wait and see on that side, because I think the other side of it is, but what's going to be really interesting is as we, in many ways right now, a lot of the attention is focused, for example, on California and New York, understandably so, Washington as well. But what we haven't heard as much from is, for example, states like Georgia. And why Georgia is important is, number one, um, Mayor Bottoms gave an announcement yesterday that The ICUs and the hospitals in metro Atlanta are almost at capacity, which is partly why she issued the stay-at-home order. But the other part that's really important that we're maybe not giving enough attention to is that the epicenter of the outbreak in Georgia is actually at C.V. Putney down south in Doubry County, right? That is an area that is, number one, less populated. It is definitely more of an area that generally votes for President Trump and where you would sort of see the bastion of that support. And I think it's going to be that one of the things that's going to happen is how this narrative starts to shift as we see more and more of the hotspots coming out, unfortunately, in areas that are not your kind of urban centers, but rather areas like Dowry County, um, Bartow County, where there appears to be some issues popping up. Uh, other places around the country where uh, we have that and how that then starts to shift the narrative again. I mean, I think for everybody, it's trying to figure out how to respond. But I do think for Biden, I mean, again, he's not in office. And this is a weird position for him because it's the first time in, what, four decades, I think, that he hasn't responded from the Perspective of being someone who is currently in office and getting these briefings, you know, as a part of his normal job, and having a way, in some level, to get the attention due to that, as well as being the candidate for president.
1: Okay, let's. Um, uh, thank you for that, Amy. I've got to get our final break of the show in. We're really getting down to the last minutes of the show, so let's do that when we come back. Uh, maybe a little more Biden, and then want to talk about. A a new study from a progressive organization uh, led by women that suggested uh, their research shows them Stacey Abrams would actually absolutely be Joe Biden's best choice for VP. We'll do all that after these messages. Greg Bluestein, uh, Sam Bermas-Daw Dawes pulled several sound bites from Joe Biden over the period of last week or so and trying to give us examples of how he is addressing the coronavirus in as careful a way as he can. We're just going to listen to uh, one of them right now. And, and then I want to ask you a couple questions about it, Greg. This is not about what your party is. It's about getting through this. And the American people don't want us in a political fight. And I want no part of a political fight either. But when the president says things that, in fact, turn out not to be accurate, we should not say you're lying. We should say, Mr. President, that's not the fact. Here's the deal. So uh, that was Biden, Greg, on The View yesterday. Here's... Um, I, I think all what Amy and Andra have had to say about the, the ability of the campaign to continue doing outreach work through social media or whatever makes perfect sense to me. But the, the question I have is, late last fall, uh, there was a great concern among many Democrats that Biden, who they thought would be their best candidate— was falling into a lethargy, was lacking enthusiasm and and building, trying to build momentum for his campaign. And, and that's why I think his sort of disappearing from the radar screen now sort of plays into that previous narrative, even after he's just had these spectacular victories that have brought him back into the lead in the race. Does that make sense to you, Greg? Yeah, it's a tough
2: position for him to be in because at uh, uh, one time, uh, on one hand, hard to take any attention away from coronavirus and away from President Trump, who is who's leading the response. Again, as we said, you know, to to his critics say that he's leading it poorly, and his supporters say he's doing a great job. But on the other hand, um, he, he, he struggles with a way to give it a differing sort of message, where you're looking like you're not just double, second-guessing everything the president is doing at a time where American people kind of need um, stability and need need to be able to trust what their leaders are saying. So he's saying on one hand, you know, he has to call out the president when he is not speaking truthfully. On the other hand, he doesn't want to look like he is he is backbiting too much at this at this moment. This is not your typical political debate.
1: Andra, let me get you and then Heath in here. Andra?
3: But I think we also have to acknowledge that any Democratic candidate would have likely been disadvantaged by this. Um, You know, yeah, the president has an advantage, a built in advantage because he has the the bully pulpit. And in times of crisis, you tend to rally around the flag and you give the president or whoever the office holder is an opportunity to, um, you know, be able to show their chops. Um, you know, for all, all of the leading Democratic uh, candidates, you know, if we look at sort of what the field looked like in January, they wouldn't have had the same platform that President Trump had, um, in part because none of them were sitting governors of a state. Um, and in particular, if we have to look at that original field, the only one who has gotten earned media at this point is Amy Klobuchar, and that's because, unfortunately, she's got a sick mm-hmm. husband. So, I mean, I think, you know, part of this is kind of built in, and yes, um it, it's terrible, and there isn't anything that we can do about it. But the, you know, the, the Democratic Party and, and and whoever the nominee is is just going to have to figure out a way to maneuver around these extraordinary circumstances.
1: So, he's you're a you're a very successful political consultant. Um, One of the things, and this plays into the next subject that we have just a couple of minutes for, one of the things somebody like Joe Biden as the presumptive nominee at this point could do is name his vice presidential running mate to get some attention right now. Uh, Way to Win, a progressive woman's think tank, uh, says that uh, they've done a, a research that shows them Stacey Abrams would absolutely be the first choice for him because she polls well across a range of demographic vote of uh, groups, including independent voters and core Democratic constituents. Would that be a way to get some attention right now, whether it's Abrams, Klobuchar or whoever?
4: It definitely would be a way uh, to get some attention. Uh, it, it would be awkward at the end of the day if he did do something like that in the middle of this, uh, you know, kind of uh, crisis that we're dealing with. Uh, it would seem like a hail mary to try to grab attention, so I think it could backfire on him. I want to say I, I respect and would be glad to know somebody who's who's going to be the vice president of the United States here from Georgia. I continue to say that it kind of shows how uh, great Stacey Abrams has done has been at doing, as I say, more with less um, than almost anybody in modern uh, political history, uh, particularly from Georgia, uh, on becoming a national figure out there and I think that's great for her and I think that it's de- she definitely fits the demographic model of who anybody in political consulting would say is gonna have to be uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, vice president I do want to say that I almost feel sorry for Joe and uh, how he's having to go campaign at this point in time but uh, we really shouldn't be campaigning uh, forthright in the middle of a crisis
1: Crocodile tears, Republican Heath Garrett. Crocodile <laughs> tears. honor then Amy. I get it. You know, Heath makes an important point. You can't grandstand at a moment like this. And What I suggest is just a time to name your vice presidential candidate. The reality is you're kind of paralyzed. You cannot do anything uh, dramatic.
3: Yeah, I mean, the optics, I think, are really tacky um, at this point. Um, and I say this, you know, living in the same neighborhood as Stacy, and my room that, that I'm in right now is actually sort of facing in the direction of I know where she lives. And, um, you know, the, <laughs> the, the other bad point about this is, is that you can't have the rollout right now, in part because the crisis is dominating the news cycle. So while, you know, it might infuse life in the, into the campaign, this is just really not the right time to do this. I will say, though, about I'm not surprised by the results that would suggest that Stacey is the strongest candidate. Um, I would say that this is something that I said on the show a long time ago, and for all the reasons that Way to Win pointed out, that she's somebody who can be a bridge across different ideological and generational camps. So, you know, I, you know, it's, it's not a surprise to me that she would emerge as somebody who would be on the short list.
1: Amy, I gotta uh, we're running fast out of time. Give me uh, about thirty seconds of your thinking on what Biden can or to, is is it paralyzed in not being able to do?
0: Um, I actually am having the thought as we keep talking about this that it's much like with the primaries when early on we were saying, you know, oh, what do we do? And I know I was a bit of a you know, beating a dead horse of, well, it's really early on. It's really early on. I think that right now we get through what's going on here. It's going to be a rough month or two as we try to figure out what's going on in the United States. Um, And then there's going to be plenty of time for campaigning, for rolling out who uh, the vice presidential pick is on the Democratic side and for head to head competition.
1: Amy, I got to uh, jump in on it uh, because we're running out of time. Uh, Heath Garrett, Andre Gillespie, Amy Steigerwald, Greg Bluestein. loved having you here. By the way, real quick note, I just got an email from a listener who said that when I called the Spanish flu in 1918, I was being as culturally biased as Trump calling it Asian Uh, virus, uh, because it was actually a, a flu that probably originated in Kansas, not Spain. The fact of the matter is we do continue to call it that, and I'm certainly not trying to be culturally insensitive. In any case, that's it for Political Rewind today. We'll be back with you again tomorrow for more. Please, everybody, take it easy today. See you tomorrow.